0: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is the last laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and we have a treat for you today. To celebrate the 4th of July, we are replaying an episode I recorded with comedian and host of CNN's United Shades of America, W. Kamau Bell, back in May of last year. We joke about it at the top of the episode, but Kamau was, and I believe still is, the only comedian to directly reach out to me on Twitter about being a guest on the show, and I still love him for that. Kamau has always found unexpected ways to somehow make issues like racial justice funny. Given the ongoing movement in this country against police brutality, our discussion is more timely than ever, and I wanted to share it with all of our new listeners who didn't catch it the first time around. And look out for the fifth season of United Shades, premiering on CNN Sunday, July 19th. Hope you enjoy this episode and are having a great holiday week. We'll be back with an all-new episode next Tuesday with Richard Kind. All right, now let's listen back to my conversation with W. Kamau Bell. Kamal, thank you uh, for for making the trip down from the Bay Area.
1: Well, thank you for letting me bully you into putting you on your yeah, podcast. Yeah, I think
0: you're probably the first and only uh, comic to reach out to me directly on Twitter requesting to be a guest. So thank you for that. Really, that makes me feel like people aren't doing their jobs. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> me comics, too. comics, not wanting attention. Comics not wanting <laughs> to talk on podcasts. Isn't that what we do? So yeah, United Shades of America is back on CNN for season four. Season four. I can't really believe it's season four already. Can you?
1: <laughs> I mean, I can feel every episode in my bones. So I. Do I do believe it's season four, yeah. but I do understand that it seems like it's not season four because it's only eight episodes a season. And also it feels like it's gone for a long time when it's gone. So people have no real sense of how long it's been. So people are like, you're yeah. fine. Where have you been? Well, it's been exactly a year since I was on last time. <laughs> but and also the rate of the news is less that it feels like if you don't hear from somebody for two months, you feel like it's been like five years.
0: Yeah. I mean, when we first talked about this show, I think right around when it was launching in 2016, that was obviously a lot has changed since then. <laughs> yep. how has doing the show changed in that time specifically? you know after in this trump well existence it's only, that we're all in are
1: all of us in it <laughs> are all of us whether uh, we like it or not yeah we're, we're experiencing it so you know i always said well after we did, got to the second season after trump was elected i always said i felt like the first season was like the mixtape and the second season was like the album mm, you know yeah. it feels like the show is very clear and also i hear from people all the time about what they expect from the show or what they get from the show so a lot of the show especially this season is based on like feedback from random people in airports mm. things that they liked about the show or things that the show means to them i was talking to the people at CNN about it. I was like, there's three versions of the show. There's the thing I think the show is, there's the thing that CNN thinks the show is, and then there's this audience, people at airports who tell me what they think it is. So I think for this season, I was really listening to the audience because I get a lot of direct feedback.
0: Can you break down the difference between what you think it is and what CNN thinks it is? Yes,
1: <laughs> without getting fired or canceled. <laughs> I think you could send us to anywhere on the planet and just let us film and we're going to find a big story there. Mm-hmm. I think every place has its big story. like CNN wants to sort of know exactly what every episode's going to be about. And I'm of the belief that like we can get there and we'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. And that the show can have a broader mission than just like we hit, we're hitting one issue a week, one issue an episode. So sometimes I'm like, well, just send us to New Orleans. <laughs> like, <laughs> that sounds and, fun. And they're like, no. <laughs> like, we'll we'll, we'll, fi- we'll talk about Katrina. We'll talk about some things. But I think they want the show to be more narrowly focused, which is fine because I think it's good to have limits. If you have no limits, then you have no function or form sometimes. So for me, and then the audience is like, you need to come to a show about my neighborhood because shit has hit the fan in my neighborhood. Like They think it's like the new kind of yeah know? like they really think if it's like or you need to do a show about this Particular high school. You know what I mean? Like, and it doesn't really work that way. Or you need to do a show about really specific things that are like, we're not exactly like going to just cover like one tiny, not tiny, but just one hyper focused issue. We're always going to have to have a big picture look at things. So, from people, they think it's the news, basically.
0: Has there been one, someone that's come up to you in an airport and said, do this? And then you did?
1: Well, on Twitter last season, we had the episode about the sick community or the sick religion. And that was based on a tweet that somebody sent to me. That's mm-hmm. why I learned to send tweets to you. Cause he yeah, was yeah. like, we, I think he sent it to my name, Harpreet Singh. I think he was during an episode about Muslims. He's like, that's a great episode. You should do one about the Sikh religion. I was like, okay. So that literally happened that way. And then a lot of times, mostly in airports, I hear about what people think like how the show impacts their lives. I hear a lot of families watch it together. I hear a lot about which episodes were their favorites. I hear the words Ku Klux Klan a lot, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is like... Well, that this, was your first ever episode, That was episode, the very first. Right? I'm still yeah. hearing about that episode. Yeah. And then I hear a lot of like, keep doing it. You got to keep it up. Like people, there's this sense for the people who like it that it's doing something that no other show is doing. So not that that's true, but that's the message I
0: get. And then on the flip side, there's a moment in the new season where someone screams at CNN sucks and uh, fuck CNN at you on, on the street. I yeah. believe, is that in Seattle? Or, that's, in, uh, that's
1: in Seattle. It's in downtown. Um, yeah. Yeah, Seattle. It's just funny. That's in Seattle. It's not in wherever you would think it'd be in America. It's in Seattle. And
0: why did you decide to keep that in the episode?
1: I'm a big fan of not believing in the fourth wall. I'm always trying to put more and more of the things that are sort of like about the show or about the filming of the show. I like the show when it's more rough and ragged. And so for me, like as a comedian, any spontaneous moments or comedy are like my Mm -hmm. favorite thing. So to me, it was hilarious that that guy in the middle of us filming knew who I was, knew what we were doing. The fact that it was funny, he was like fucking in as he kept walking away. Yeah. And so I was like, okay, this guy's not really about that life. So I can keep talking. <laughs> like I can, yeah. I can keep sort of screaming, okay, thank you, sir. Like it was really like <laughs> nice sweater. Like it was just to me. I think the show, the version of the show that I do, like because you know Lisa Ling has a show on CNN. There are other shows on CNN. I have to lean into the parts that I feel like are best for me. Otherwise, they maybe they all start to look the same. Like Lisa Ling's probably not going to leave the fuck CNN moment in the show. Yeah, and I'm sure it's happened at some point. But for <laughs> me, I'm like whenever things happen that weren't to the plan, I get excited. So and also it's important for me to know that I'm a real person. So I'm not just some sort of personal TV talking. Like I'm a real. Person person and that's the moment of like I'm a real person this guy's yelling at me because the thing that you're watching right now he hates it was
0: funny to see that happen to you because I mean we see people like Jim Acosta and some yeah. of these other news people we know they're getting harassed like this yeah. all the time yeah. at the events but you kind of wouldn't think it would be happening to you because what you're doing is so different from what, <laughs> what they're doing
1: yeah it's, they're responding to the brand not necessarily yeah like, and also I mean I, we cut those moments out like I think there was another one in a different episode that was fuck and it was like basically like but there was sort of the sense of, like you don't have one of those <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, Every like, episode can't have fucks yeah. yet. I but mean, it just so <laughs> happened that we were in Philly and somebody said, this one was actually funnier, I think, because this woman came and she was really upset about what we were talking about. And she wasn't in the interview, but she was in the episode in Philly about uh, toxic environments, about lead poisoning. Mm-hmm. And she was like, very much agree with the fact that we needed to be talking about lead poisoning. You guys didn't have the whole story. Like, I was talking to one guy and she was just like in her house and came outside and just started yelling at us in agreement. You're right. That's true. We need to do... And she's like, who are you with? And I was like... And I knew the way she yeah. said it, like This isn't going to go CNN. She's like, oh... And <laughs> but which I like that more. But we picked our fuck CNN in moment. Yeah. yeah.
0: What have you learned over these four seasons of shooting the show in terms of talking to strangers, especially people you don't agree with, because that's a lot of what you do on mm-hmm. the show, and it's something that most people, I think, are not doing in their own lives is going out and seeking out people who they disagree with and having conversations with them. What have you learned about yourself and and how to do that?
1: Despite what maybe my wife would think, I'm a really good listener. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to agree to you to listen to you. I think a lot of times it's important, especially when you disagree with somebody, to be quiet and let them get all their stuff out because people are so ready to be interrupted. When they know they're saying something you don't agree with, they're preparing to be interrupted. And if you interrupt them, then you sort of very quickly derail the conversation into a battle of who can talk louder or faster. Mm. You see it all the time on TV. And so for me, because United Shades, I have the luxury of time that you don't have in a lot of TV shows. I'll let you go for a half hour if, if you need to get it all out. And then at the end of that half hour, I'll be like, okay, can I say something? And like, I'm sort of like making sure, did you get it all out? Mm-hmm. And I think it sort of makes people more comfortable and it also makes a better conversation. So usually when people are talking, in the middle of them talking, I'll be like, okay, I need to remember that point. I can't remember that. Like I'll sort of sort of in my head catalog the things I want to talk back about. And then at the end of it, go back in. But I think you, people get so quick to like pretend like it's high school debate, even though they're not really even following the rules of high school debate because you can't interrupt in high school debate. But we see it modeled on TV all the time. Like people just sort of yammering at each other.
0: You mentioned, you know, obviously the show started at the very beginning with that KKK episode and that was mm-hmm. this kind. of of putting yourself in this dangerous situation in a lot of ways, what could have been a dangerous situation. Are there moments like that in the new season that you we, felt you know, uncomfortable in that same way?
1: Yeah, I mean, the episode you're talking about in Seattle Tacoma, it, the whole lead up of that episode is that we were going to a protest or a rally outside of a Nazi-owned tattoo shop in Tacoma, Washington. And there was just all this talk about the layers of security we needed and how, like, do you need to, could this community to wear a bulletproof vest? Because mm. these were like people who they felt like definitely were armed. and might decide to be violent if they feel like that's their last choice. And so there was just all all this way more than we did with the Klan. Now the Klan was also the pilot, so maybe we didn't have the budget for all for <laughs> bulletproof vests. But there was a lot of talking from the production company about meetings about strategy, how to get out, and you're on Kamau and just grab it, you know, all this mm-hmm. stuff. So that one was, in some sense, was more scary than the Klan because there was a lot more talking about it before we got in there. So that was the one moment with the season. And then you'll see in the episode, sort of it ends up being like this: like families were there, and it was like mm-hmm. a very, it was a very positive rally at a Nazi-owned tattoo shop.
0: But you also had some people with guns on your side, on the protest side yep. uh, there too. Which was interesting to see. I mean, what did you think about that movement? You can tell us what it's called, but the movement that kind of embraces guns from a more left position.
1: Well, the national movement is the Redneck Revolt. And when you hear that, you think, like, I don't think that sounds good at all. (laughs) It sounds like rednecks who are going to revolt against me, or people that we think should not be revolted against. But it's actually rednecks who are revolting against sort of the idea of rednecks, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, there are people like, I'm from the South, you know, I'm as cunt but I think the ways in which certain people from the South are portraying the South, I'm not in support of, as far as, like, people who are like literally Nazis or neo-Nazis or alt-right who are sort of claiming that that's what the South is. And so these are like liberal rednecks. And also if you grew up in the South, whether you voted Obama or McCain, it's a gun culture. Democrats in the South also grew up around guns. It's not like they only let the, leave those to the Republicans. So it's sort of a way for people who are like, I grew up with guns. I believe in the second amendment. And also, and I see how the people who grew up with guns who are racist or homophobic or anti-Semitic, and those people show up at these rallies with their guns. And a lot of us liberals, we don't show up at the Rise with our guns. These people in the Red Revolt and also the John Brown Gun Club specifically in Tacoma and Seattle are like, we can show up with our guns to stand up to those people because since we are a white-led organization, our skin will protect us in ways that, it, that if you're a black person, you show up to a protest with a gun. That's probably not the best way to go about it.
0: Yeah, but then there's just more guns on both sides, There's is is, more. Gu- th- seems dangerous. There, you know, <laughs> g- yes, guns
1: are dangerous. I think we can, that, we can stipulate that. I think the thing that I learned from those guys is like, they also believe in like, as somebody who spent time in the South, guns are dangerous. I also Believe guns are a tool, and I also believe that like the way they show up to those rallies, they're not showing up to shoot their guns. They're not. They're not hoping for violence. They're showing up to say we're going to show you that we have guns as a way to hopefully prevent violence. And their track record is pretty good, you know. So I'd say that's true. I'm not trying to say that. This is the thing about this episode. It's called not all white people. Like, so mm, yeah. it's like because I get asked all the time in airports by white people, "What do I do?" And so we're showing you an assortment of things that white people can do. They're not all get a gun and show up to a Black Lives Matter rally to protect Black Lives Matter activists. That's just one of the things but there's also <laughs> other things in that episode to show If you can do i think it's just the idea of like we have to stop pretending like there's only one way to handle this current era of america
0: well, another thing i learned about you in this episode that i didn't know before is you're a leader of antifa
1: yeah <laughs> <laughs> i learned that too from tucker carlson <laughs>
0: <laughs> so yeah so you have the clip in the show of him talking about you on his show was that flattering or what do oh, you think when you saw fuck that? Fuck
1: him Kamau Bell is, among other things, a host on CNN. He fronts a show on that channel called United Shades of America. It's run there for two seasons now. Bell calls himself a political provocateur, but that doesn't quite capture it. In fact, he is a supporter of Antifa. On Sunday, Bell showed up at the No Hate in the Bay rally and addressed the crowd with a bullhorn. You remember the event? It's the one where mobs and black masks attacks people they thought might have voted for Donald Trump. Bell offered his encouragement. So when the Nazis leave, as they have left, bye, Nazis, bye! Like, so here's it So that... That happened right around the time. There was, like, all these alt-right marches in Berkeley. And the first time it happened, Berkeley didn't take it that seriously. So the alt-right was like, oh, they won't come back another time. And they came back another time, and Berkeley didn't take it that seriously. And then the third time, like, every, like, sort of anti-racist activist in the surrounding area, including those in Berkeley, showed up and outnumbered. And I was part of that. That's when I went as a way to go. Not to confront. There were fights that broke out. But most people went to just go, we're going to just put our bodies here to show you that we, that you're not going to just take over this area. Mm-hmm. And it's not okay. I went there with a with Pastor Michael McBride. He's in our megachurch. In the premiere, yeah. Yeah, and so I went with him, and there was Antifa there, and there was school teachers there, and there was like, you know, there was farmer's market people there, and there Mm -hmm. was children there, and there's an assortment of people. And there's Surge, which is a white privilege organization showing up for racial justice, which is just white people who are anti-racist. Me and my wife got on this truck, because they were like, come up here so you can be, sort of get out of the crush of the crowd. And I think the one thing I said, like, they gave me a megaphone at one point, and I was like, this is the Berkeley I believe in, we're all here together showing up. And I was like, the Nazis were here, but apparently they left. And I screamed, bye, Nazis, bye. <laughs> and then Tucker Carlson clipped out the by Nazis by part, as if that's a bad yeah. thing to say. How dare you say bye to
0: Nazis? <laughs> I was
1: just like, well, but somehow he manipulated it to like I was on this Antifa truck, which maybe it was owned by somebody from Antifa, and then I was somehow a part of Antifa, and Antifa's a hate organization, so therefore that we be come out bell pedals hate. And that's fine and good. The funny thing was is like I heard it was gonna happen, but what I heard before it aired, Pastor Michael McBride called me and said, They want me to come on Tucker Carlson tonight to talk about this. And I was like, Well, don't do that. Yeah, and he was Never- never do that but he was like gearing up for like okay i think my life's going to be made significantly worse by the fact that tucker carlson's going to target me tonight on his show and i was like yeah you're probably right about that and so we talked about he's like so i'm getting my troops together like not troops but his people yeah. together and like and also security team because he just you know he's just a guy who lives in the Bay Area he's not like some famous rich guy living up on a shiny hill so he's like I gotta get ready and I was like all right whatever you need for me that's fine then it aired and it turned out it was targeting me yeah. and I was like oh hilarious <laughs> <laughs> and then Patrick McBride called me up, like what do you need bro what can you do yeah. I was like I'll be fine yeah. and but it did significantly affect my life for about because he did two segments on me
0: how did it affect your life
1: like Twitter blew up getting more like direct sort of like more frog memes and more, just mm-hmm. more just like direct hate. And I've like, my quality filter on Twitter so I'm sure I'm not getting most of it and just like when your Twitter blows up and people are coming after you there's this you want to sort of go back after them but you realize at some point that you you can't go back to everybody and then there was also a side of this that like I was being advised by people don't engage with it at all like just step away from Twitter like Mm because you don't know who's who and what's what we don't want to make this worse and so but it's also like you know it also just made me and my wife more paranoid at that point where we were living was right in the middle of the open and it just felt like we lived in downtown Berkeley where every night at three o'clock in the morning some Crazy guy goes ah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so and you never know who is that or is that just a crazy guy or is that like a is yeah. that like a thing is that the announcement <laughs> of the attack you know yeah. and so it just made us it just made us more paranoid and then I had gigs on the road and suddenly we started talking about getting security for the gigs and I remember I did a gig in Arkansas I think it was around this time and I got to the airport and I was picked up by the police and taken to the gig mm-hmm. and like i I'd never had never happened before and then there was like I met like fifteen cops who were at the gig to like I was like this one black cop came up to me and he was like um I really like your work and I was like can I ask a question do you guys do this all the time or is this a special case and he sort of smiled like Ahh. yeah and I was like got it special case mm. you know so it literally it affected my life in a way that I felt less safe in my world because of what Tucker Carlson did because he's accusing me of peddling hate which is pot calling the kettle Tucker Carlson like that's exactly what his show does is peddling hate and then as I talked about it more I heard from lots of people who aren't blue check mark people with tv shows who were like he did that to me and it did make my life worse and I don't and they didn't have a platform to speak for him about it so yeah and at the time I was also like CNN is also worried about looking like they're at war with Fox News, and so there was also this sort of like this sort of talk to me about like don't get into a war with Tucker mm-hmm. Carlson, and I was just like, and I remember saying at the time, okay, I accept that I have to be quiet, I have to sort of sit here and chew it up now, but I'm gonna hold this. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'm a comedian and an only child, so I keep grudges, <laughs> and so I sort of was like, was it, at some point I'm gonna be able to use this in a way that like actually makes me feel like I can resolve it, and so this was it gets resolved in this mm. United Shades when I interview a member of Antifa and uh, we have a wonderful
0: talk about. Did Tucker Carlson invite you on his show to... He
1: invited, like, his people called CNN, can we have come out mm-hmm. on the show? And they knew that, like, there's no way CNN, even if I wanted yeah. to go, there's no way CNN they wouldn't, they just it. wouldn't. And I wouldn't, there's no circumstance in which I would do that. I'd rather talk to the Klan again. <laughs> At least they're honest.
0: <laughs> what do you think about the whole debate over whether Democrats should go on Fox News either as guests on shows or, you know, obviously they, they decided not to do any debates there, but I think there's been some debate about that about decision debates. too. Debate yeah. debates. Yeah.
1: <laughs> (laughs) They should have a debate debate on Fox News. They should have a debate on Fox News about whether or not they should should go on Fox News. I don't think Fox News is a legitimate news organization. Maybe I hear Shepard Smith has a good hour, (laughs) maybe during that hour it's okay. But I don't believe as a whole that they are a legitimate news organization in that they're not putting their... Every news organization has a bias. I'm not trying to say that like there's unbiased news organizations, but I believe that Fox News, especially the nighttime shows, peddle in lies and misinformation and targeting people and mock in, sort of like mocking the weak and mocking the afflicted. So, I mean, that's what they do so i don't know if i was in charge of the democratic party and yes i will i will take that job <laughs> but it pays a lot yeah. <laughs> i think you have to take a stand at some point do you have to take they need to take a lot more stands what's the percentage in going on fox news what's the best case scenario like the worst case scenario is way more likely than the best case scenario. yeah but what's the best case scenario
0: yeah i mean the idea i guess is that there's this whole group of people that they're not going to reach in any other way and so and you know they get more viewers than than cnn sorry Yeah. Uh, don't <laughs> apologize to me i'm not responsible for <laughs> hate cells. yeah we
1: when you're not adhering to the facts, it's easy to create good programming. NBC gets more viewers than that because they make a lot of fictional television. Yeah. So and so Fox News is is more of an entertainment channel than they are a news channel because some people like to be entertained by hate. So here's the thing about that. If there was no electoral college, then you maybe go on Fox News because you need to try to get as many votes as possible. Mm-hmm. But the electoral college has created a situation through which this is just like a math problem. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's like a stra- it's more of a strategy than a problem than it is like an actual like we need to get all the votes possible. I think there's way Better ways to get in touch with the with Republican voters who are likely to vote Democrat because I don't believe those people are watching Fox News. Right.
0: With that in mind, is there anyone in the in the field right now that has you excited? For me,
1: it's straight Thunderdome. I want you all to like, yeah. figure it out and <laughs> battle it out, and I'll stand outside like uh <laughs> and see who the winner is. You have your your hometown
0: uh, Kamala, Kamala Harris. Harris. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you have any uh, thoughts about her? You must have been aware of her maybe longer than than yeah, most
1: Americans. It, that's probably true. I mean, Kamala Harris has a lot of issues in the Bay Area because of as an attorney general, Mm -hmm. the amount how she approached there's a lot of black men in jail because of Kamala Harris and in jail for too long because of Kamala Harris. It's funny, she certainly is a popular figure in the Bay Area, but she's not popular with the most progressive people. So for me, like, I'm not saying that I wouldn't vote for Kamala Harris. I'm not here to stump for anybody right now. Mm -hmm. Like, and I don't know that I will stump for anybody. I really find voting sort of the team sports of politics to be sort of, like, sort of depressing. And I think when it comes right down to it, you have to make that decision for yourself who you vote for. And I really don't want to put myself Position and a lot of this because my wife too I have to explain the sins of another person because I'm their uh, surrogate I don't want to be anybody's mm. surrogate I yeah. really find that to be that's what has kept me out of like really like endorsing anybody a lot of times because I don't want to be but what about the time they said I got I enough problems explaining things I said <laughs> so I mean I'm ha- you know certainly if it's Trump versus candidate X I will go for candidate X
0: so one other thing I wanted to talk about is your late great show totally biased which I was a big <laughs> fr- uh, fan of you were the one <laughs> ran for a little more than a year yep. 2012 to 2013 mm-hmm. how do you think about that time now now that you're removed from it a bit I and mean, you have this new show which which has has done so well are there things that that you think you would you would change if you could go back and do it again oh, yeah, or it would a lot of yeah the thing
1: i would change which is impossible to change I would have served a tenure at John Stewart University. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that, if you look at the people who are doing well with those kinds of shows right now, many of them are graduates of John Stewart University. And so for me, I went in there pretty cold. I went to Chris Rock Night School, which was not, you know, (laughs) but which was great. I think Chris would even agree that like, if FX had said, you have a show, we're gonna launch it in a year, but we've gotten you an internship with The Daily Show, I'd have been like, great. (laughs) Like I think going back, I needed more experience seeing how that worked up close so that I could have better knowledge of how to make it work for me. So I think I was so green and that's clear from when you've watched. I think it lives better in people's memories than it does if you pull up the clips a lot of times. But mm-hmm. I think I was very green and learning on the job in a way that, like, John Oliver had to learn how to helm a show. We didn't have to learn how to be on a show. So right. I was learning how to be on the show and helm a show. Sam B. it's the same thing. Trevor Noah even got to spend a little bit of time. Mm-hmm. like just all this evidence of people like that was the way to get there. So, yeah, I would do that differently.
0: Despite some of the people you just mentioned, I mean, there is still this major <laughs> lack of diversity on late night TV, especially on networks and sort of the bigger shows. Shows. And, you know, in the time since your show, you know, we saw Larry Wilmore's show get canceled, several female-fronted shows, Michelle Wolf, uh, Robin Thede. Is that Neil Hall got
1: canceled. Yeah. <laughs> he was another one. Is that
0: disheartening for you to see that, that kind of stuff? What Robin Thede is
1: disheartening just because I don't know what BET expected to, ha- to happen with that show. They'd never done a yeah. show like that before. So it seems to me you could have just kept it on forever, kind of, and yeah. not, it's going to get better as it goes, and she's going to find her voice. So that one is kind of like, you could just let that show stay on and let it find its voice way like remember when trevor noah first had the show i mean there's still people who haven't taken to trevor noah but he's also found a new audience who's like didn't watch it before the stream but text.
0: he's he's grown a lot in that he's role grown a lot
1: because comedy central knew that it was an investment they weren't going to pull the new host of the daily show three months in or a year in even they were like we have to sort of let this lie and so they did and so trevor noah got more comfortable he was already comfortable on tv but he got more comfortable as the host of the daily mm-hmm. show and like even now like one of the big things that trends on that show is when he the between the scenes segments mm-hmm. i mean that's something john stewart didn't do so i think giving people talented people a chance is how Talented people make good things. So Michelle Wolf didn't have much of a chance because I mean you know it wasn't around long enough for her to get comfortable in it. And into people feel like the minute you make a mistake, you're going to pull them, then they're going to make more mistakes they're not. They're not going to take big chances. But I also just think that the reason why I think I wouldn't want to have a show like Totally Biased again is because I hate the fact that there's this thing called late night TV. Yeah. That the moment you do one of those, they start comparing you to every other late night TV host. Like when mm-hmm. I had Totally Biased, I'd read articles where it was like, finally a new host in late night TV, and there'd be like a triptych of like me, you know, like Jimmy Fallon. <laughs> Jimmy Kimmel, David Letterman. You know, like, like yeah. what is that? I'm not doing any of those things. And yeah. so for me, like, I think about Wyatt Cenac has problem areas. Is that a late night show? I don't think so. But he's sort of doing some of those things, mm. but it's just on HBO. It's just an yeah. HBO show. I think that format of late night show, especially in this era when people don't watch things at the same time, mm-hmm. is in some sense just a tired format to think of. I don't think John Oliver thinks of his show as a late night show. He thinks of it as the John Oliver show. And I yeah. think that, like, but again, he's at HBO. I think that, like, when we get, I mean, even Conan is trying to figure out, like, you know. Yeah. Yeah, how, changing how I, things up. Because yeah. it's just that format is just like, even the shows that are doing well, the things, it's funny, I mean, people have talked about this, the things that Jimmy Fallon does well are not the things that late night talk show hosts traditionally have done well. Mm-hmm. Like he does, like he's not a long form interview guy. He's not a monologue guy. So I think that format of late night TV is just a tired format. And so I get really sad for people when, when comics break through and they immediately get them a late night talk show. I'm like, oh no. <laughs> <laughs> it's like for lack of a better idea. And I feel like with Totally Bias, I didn't think of it as a late night talk show but it was on late night and so it gets mm-hmm. caught up in that conversation like just put it on at six in the afternoon like, yeah. I, like you know I think the minute you put it in that box then people are judging it against other things in that box in a way that like Atlanta with Donald Glover is just judges as a TV show mm-hmm. so for me it, the minute I was if I was to go totally bias is back first of all FX would be like not so fast we own all that and
0: FXX would be like I don't think we exist anymore exactly.
1: uh, <laughs> <laughs> they only have Simpsons reruns anymore right they lost that to Disney or yeah, I don't know yeah so the minute I would have to be the exhausting nature of being of like having to see myself in those articles with, like, a new mm. late-night talk show host. Yeah. And it just, like, it makes me feel sad. But regularly, like, I, have Dwayne Kennedy, who is on Totally Biased, also works on United Shades of America, and he's regularly trying to get me to bring it back. <laughs> it's funny. I was like, when that show was over, you ran out of that building like it was on fire, which a lot of us <laughs> did. But I do see things in the news where I'm like, or oh, well, how would I approach this? What's my take mm-hmm. on this? This season with United Shades, I think we have done a lot more stuff with the graphics to sort of, like, push things in a more comedic direction mm-hmm. than we have in the past. So, And you have stand-up as an outlet for that stuff. This is probably my least year of stand-up comedy since I started doing stand-up, just of other things but stand-up comedy is is my outlet for that for those things i mean the thing i also late night is so i remember being frustrated by Tully Bias is that you do those jokes once and never again yeah that's such a bummer (laughs) like (laughs) like the the best thing about stand-up comedy is like the first time you do it it's like oh well this we got two years to make this better
0: coming up w kamau bell tells me why unlike most comics he has no problem performing stand-up for politically correct college students so, you've had two stand up specials on Netflix over the last few years, right? No, the first, oh, one, the was first on one First one was on Showtime. That was semi prominent Negro, yep, right? Yep. And then you had Private School Negro on Netflix. Yep. So, is there a third? Uh, the Negro in trilogy? The, yeah, is there a third one coming? <laughs> or I, should we expect 2020? Uh... I, I mean, I think I
1: automatically have to make the Negro trilogy now. just because yeah. that's. I didn't mean to put, like, the first one was called Semi prominent Negro because the name that I picked they didn't like. I don't remember what the name was, but it was like there was all this talk about the name. They were saying, well, just pick something from a joke. And I was like, semi prominent Negro. And they're like, oh, that looks good on graphic Mm -hmm. and then I'm a big fan of the word Negro I think it just comes down to that I just like the word Negro a lot and I like thinking of myself as a Negro just hard because there's just all these conversations we have to have because racism is just you know it's bad right now we have to have all these people of color we have to have all these conversations and unfortunately we have to have them with white people (laughs) it'd be easy if we could just have with each other there's racism right there sure is papa see you later and I'm not mad at you white people, let me be clear. I'm not mad at you, you're not the ones who are here. You're some of the good ones. You're not like the rest. You speak so well. All I'm trying to say is. I like be like, hey, that started out as a compliment, but then it hurt my feelings. I know, I know. I learned it from you, Dad. I learned it from you. But yes yeah, so I think I'll have to do the Negro trilogy but I like I said stand-up this year I've done like two stand-up dates. I still perform at colleges a lot with my solo show the w out Bell curve ending racism in about an hour so I still get like performance out of me I also have a 10 month old baby so whenever I get bummed out about why am I not doing stand-up I'm like because you have three kids and one of them is 10 months old oh yeah that's right that's right that's a good excuse it is for great. not getting on stage it's <laughs> a great excuse for a lot of things for not helping friends move but yeah so but I, I there will be more stand-up but I don't I don't know if it'll even happen in 2020 I don't know when it's gonna happen but I mean it'll I'll definitely do stand-up in
0: 2020. How do you feel like your stand-up has evolved over that time from the first special to the second one and now into the future?
1: I never thought of myself as a person who could tell stories or was interesting in telling stories. I really think of like stand-up bits as like more story forms now. Like these sort of like, mm-hmm. these are the short sort of punchy bits that are just sort of like, like topical bits are usually like topical news bits. But like all the stuff about my kids are based in stories. And I really like telling long form stories now in a way that like, in some sense, because I do these college dates, I have more time to do that on stage. It's like, I, I have a better time opening my Stuff in front of college audiences than I do if I was to go to a comedy club and do like a 10-minute set,
0: you know? So you like playing at colleges. I've talked to some comics who hate playing at <laughs> I colleges. I know. This is such a hot topic. Do you, what do you make of that? I mean, you must hear what pe- other people say, oh, I hate playing colleges. It's just these woke kids who won't laugh at anything oh, and God. looking around to see who oh, else is boy. laughing. Oh, and is that not your experience?
1: It is my experience, but it's also why college gigs pay more. Like, the comedian named Dan St. Paul, who is a great comedian, he does a lot of private gigs. He's like, they don't pay you more than at private gigs because you're so great. They pay you more because very few people can do those gigs. Hmm. College gigs, I think there was some idea from some comedians, and also general, that college gigs would be more fun because the audiences are younger and hipper and more whatever, tuned in. But that's by the nature of college gigs. Any gig that you play where it's a defined Chloe is off community, it's going to be harder. Like, you want to play a wedding reception? They're all drinking, having a good time? They just saw a wedding? No, you don't want to play a wedding reception. You know, any gig where the audience of people sort of knows each other more than they know you and they're not walking in as individuals, they're walking in as a group, whether it's their what, Even if you play a one-nighter in a small town where everybody in the club kind of knows each other, but they don't know the comedian, that's a harder gig. Mm. Those just don't pay well as college gigs. So for me, it's like first of all, in the history of comedy, most comedians couldn't do college gigs. That's just the nature of the game. And on top of that, colleges are automatically more sensitive areas, even if it's like Oral Roberts University. They're automatically, because they're all there having their brain stretched and also being lectured every day about how to be in the world. And they might have come from some seminar about like consent or some mm. seminar about binge drinking so they're thinking about all this stuff and then your job is to come in there and if you're coming in like me they're bringing me in for a very specific reason like we need a black guy to talk about race <laughs> you know, like, but even if you're just a comic who's coming in for comedy night they're just more sensitive than your average audience because college is not the real world it's a it's like a peach it's like a gym for your brain to sort of like expand your mind and so they're just, it's not a regular audience and so for me when comedians complain about colleges don't play them and also, at some point, I'm going to age out of playing them too. Like, at some point, I'm going to not want to. It started with like this thing that, like, that Chris Rock that somebody said Chris Rock said to Seinfeld and Seinfeld, and it was this whole like, well, no, Chris Rock and Seinfeld aren't playing colleges, first of all, because they can't afford to pay them the money that they would yeah. cost, and, and also it... they're grown ass men <laughs> yeah. with kids and mortgages, <laughs> 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 you know. And I'm one of those too. Let me say this: if Chris Rock played a college, he would might do great. But there would also be people who are like, wait, I just saw a thing about that thing that Chris Rock said. It's more trouble than it's worth for those guys. Mm-hmm. But colleges are supposed to be more trouble. That's the nature of the game. Game. the comedy club is the fun thing the colleges are not supposed to be the fun thing for the That's work
0: and have you had moments in those college gigs where people you could tell they were upset about something or I you can, know walked I, out or, i can do you one better
1: last night i was in vegas at the Wynn casino playing a gig for mass torts the lawyers who take down corporations oh, yeah
0: they like comedy too
1: that's what they said they did. <laughs> they thought they did. So I'm doing the bell curve in a ballroom at the Steve Wynn casino wow. for, I don't know, 500 lawyers. All in suits. All who've been sitting in workshops all day oh about mass torts, and these are the, like they're the liberal lawyers, but they're also the rich liberal lawyers because they're like taking down major corporations. And it's also like the head of the bar association is there. The black lawyers' guild is like it's all these sort of like we're here to do our thing, and they kind of just wanted to come out to this comedy show and laugh. And I'm talking about structural and institutionalized racism, and I got slides and things, and, <laughs> da, da, da. and I was about ten minutes in, and it was like not going well. Yeah, and I was like this might be a disaster. <laughs> 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 this may be one of those gigs where I run out of the room. But the thing that sucks at the casino, I'm staying in the casino. I, there's nowhere to run. And yeah. I can't figure out how to get out because they're built in circles. And then once I had that realization, I sort of talked about it. By the end, I'd gotten enough of them back. They were happy with it. And I took pictures with them. And But for me, it's like, that gig was hard. And in the middle of it, things that normally got huge laughs were getting nothing. Yeah, Like nobody's, right. Re- like maybe a couple people are recognizing the jokes, but they're also in there with their law offices and teams Teams of people, and like if I laugh at that, then what does my boss think, or what does my cohort think? It was nearly a disaster. I pulled it through. Now some people I heard there was a table full of white lawyers who, ten minutes in, at the same point that I went, this could be a disaster. They got up and sort of left in a huff, like in an aggressive huff, like mm. we're gonna let people know we're leaving in a huff because we didn't <laughs> come for this. Yeah, we didn't know it was Negroes with opinions night. <laughs> Maybe the name of my next special, Negro with opinions. Well, there opinion. you go. Yeah. But the gig paid better than other gig. You know what I'm saying? And I didn't take the gig just because it paid. It was I like, do these gigs all the time. So I'm not saying like it paid enough so I did it. But it was like they were paying me to do this gig and I knew going in like this is probably not going to be the easiest thing it's not supposed to be easy all the time we're literally in comics engaged in one of the hardest art forms because not only is it like creating art you're trying to control the reaction of the listener at all times and that's easier the easiest place to do that I think is a Saturday night at 8 o'clock in a comedy club when Mm -hmm. people have had a day of rest they didn't go to work they've had a couple drinks but they're not trying to get loaded like the late show and they're kind of like we're already having fun we're not at work we didn't work today we're just here to laugh that's the easiest place to do it the hardest place to do it is any gig where they're flying you in specifically to do a thing that they want you to do. And so for me, when comics complain about those gigs, just don't do them. And at some point, you find other things to do, but every comic has not promised a career doing colleges. Yeah. And if you do them, they're not actually, comics who do those gigs all the time will tell you, they're not fun. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, just going back to uh, United Shades for a moment, is there anything else? Uh, yeah, is there anything <laughs> else that is coming up on this new season that you're excited for people to see, or that might be surprising? Or uh... yeah, we
1: have an episode that's in Jackson, Mississippi, about reproductive justice and reproductive rights, and we part of that we film at the last abortion clinic in Mississippi. For what it sounds like, it sounds like it could be depressing, but I think it's a super like engaging and up and sort of weirdly uplifting episode. We have an episode about the Hmong people in St. Paul and Minneapolis, which is like this group of Asian people who many of them came from Laos. It's all about about the secret war. It's a subject I knew nothing about. The secret war is adjacent to the Vietnam War. And so it's an episode that's like, sort of like one of the things we do is like, here's something that most Americans know nothing about. <laughs> and So it's one of those. We have a great episode about, that's in Salt Lake City and it's about Mormons and the LGBTQ plus community in Salt Lake City and where they come together and where they don't. It's trying to be a very sensitive sort of look at the Mormon religion because it's easy to make fun of the Mormon religion as we talk about in the episode. Like they're the one religion you can make fun of and nobody stops you. Not even Mormons. Matt and Trey Parker, as we say in the episode, have gotten rich and richer off of making fun of <laughs> <laughs> Mormons. So I just said Matt and Trey Parker, like they're a couple. Yeah. Matt Stone and Trey Parker. <laughs> we've also got special guests in this season that like people who are like, we were able to, like, we've been around for four years. So, like, in that episode, we have Dan Reynolds from Imagine Dragons in mm. it. In the DC episode, we have April Ryan, who's the White House reporter, and we have Henry Rollins in that episode. So, we've been able to reach out. And also, I bring my friends in, like, Pastor Michael McBride is in the mega church episode. That's a good one about mega churches and money. In the Seattle Tacoma episode, my friend Alicia Garza, who's one of the co founders of Black Lives Matter in it, which for me is like, people talk about Black Lives Matter on CNN all the time, and mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of a talking point, and just to be able to go, I'm going to put one of the co-founders yeah. on the network to speak freely, which very rarely happens. I'm yeah, that's awesome.
0: Yeah. I mean, these are a lot of dark topics that you cover on the show or things that can be more uh, depressing in some ways. Have there been ones that you just said, like, I don't know how, to, how we're going to make this one funny?
1: I say that all the time on the way in, I don't know, but it's like, I find that once you get there and start working with the thing, it's really about people's level of comfortability, so the minute I get there, like with the Hmong episode, what I was told is that that it's a very private community. They sort of like they don't want to talk to outsiders about what they've been through. So I was nervous, like, how are we gonna get anything from these people? Not to just make funny, but just to make a good hour of TV. Mm-hmm. It's funny I forget this about myself. As again, I'm a good listener. I'm not gonna talk over you. And I think if you approach things as like wide open and just sort of curious, and also I think there's enough evidence of me in the world now that people can look and see that I think the sick episode last year did a real good reason, a good way of showing like we can cover a community that that I, as the watcher as the host, know nothing about and do it in a sensitive way. So I mean, yeah, I didn't know that where we would find the humor in that one and then one of the best things of the season is this man who talks about growing up How during the secret war his family just escaped to the jungles of Laos and how as a seven year old he was like climbing trees and would hold, like, hold on to trees for hours at a time while he was hunting pigeons from trees and like you know having to make his own bow and arrow and he was hilarious like he told it the way anybody tells a story about it. when I was a kid we walked up both hills yeah, the, yeah. the, walked <laughs> in snow both <laughs> ways uphill both ways like he was very comfortable telling his story and so his comfortability and his humor around it led me to be comfortable around it so I think humor always helps you tell a story better and it's certainly people forget that it's a natural human reaction that in the middle of sad things to look for humor Mm -hmm. It it just is so the show has proven that over and over again and so in the salt lake city episode there's some really intense stuff about how the mormon religion the lds church really like pushes people away and there's like a high suicide rate and all these things but in there there's these moments of light that come through that are pretty amazing
0: so, before we wrap up, what I like to do is kind of go through a few highlights from your career that we didn't get to talk about and see if you can just pull out one memory or one story that comes, the first thing that kind of comes to mind. So, to start, can you talk about the first time you got on stage to do stand up?
1: <laughs> it was in uh, Chicago, Illinois, at a place called the No Exit Cafe. I had to do five minutes. And I remember just trying to make sure I did the five minutes. Like, that was the big thing. Like, how are you going to be on stage for five minutes? <laughs> there is not one joke from that night that I told ever again after weeks and weeks of writing jokes down in a notebook and I just there was not there was like literally <laughs> the, and the thing that happened I came off stage and people go you have really good stage presence which I later was learned was a way of saying you didn't have one joke <laughs>
0: so, I didn't laugh but uh, no, you, you yeah. stood on they were literally
1: saying you stood on stage for five minutes good for you, <laughs> right, you know? But so I didn't have I it took me a long time to learn how to write jokes I would just yammer
0: I imagine that a lot of people may have heard you for the first time on this American life mm-hmm. what did you learn from that experience working with Ira Glass and the the, this American Life team.
1: Well first of all it's funny it was one of the first episodes that Ira Glass didn't host himself. Oh. So he was in the office and I got to talk to him for a little bit and mm-hmm. that was nice but I was like oh that's how it works <laughs> <laughs> I come on the guest host week which was fine but the thing I learned about that is that everything has a format in the way it's done mm-hmm. so I learned that week like you would sort of go I'm gonna do this and they they would be like that's not we don't actually that's not <laughs> but I'm gonna and so when I listen to it I can hear myself doing a This American Life version of my story mm-hmm. which at first I was like a little bit bummed out about but then I realized no this is how their listeners need to hear it so and what the feedback I got was like their listeners reacted to it in a very like sort of strong and positive way which they probably wouldn't have if I had been on there look here white people Mm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I'm really proud of the fact that we got that great segment on there with Cliff Means who did speak very directly to white privilege and what white people weren't doing in a way that I felt like this is not something you hear on This American Mm, Life really so I felt like there's stuff in there that was like I think they've done a lot more race stuff now I just listened to a piece by Jelani Cobb but I felt like at that point I was like sort of breaking some ground.
0: This is something that we talked a little bit about a little while back but I'm curious to know what what sort of the first thing that comes to mind when you think about your trip to Kenya with Anthony Bourdain which was one of the final episodes of his show that aired. The
1: thing that comes to mind is I learned so much in that 11 days with him and his crew that I'm like looking back I was like I would have Paid to do that, like you know, he gets again. It's mm-hmm. that internship thing. If I'd known what I was going to get out of it, and they would said it's going to cost you ten thousand dollars to do this, I'd have been like, if I'd know, I was mm-hmm. like, oh, honey, I think we got to do this. Yeah. And she would like, let's pull, figure it out. I, I learned so much about TV production, about the way they do it versus the way we do it on the United Shades of America. And on top of that, I feel really fortunate that, that I got that time with him because, as people have told me, who knew him, it was like, yeah, he really liked you. Like we were becoming friends, mm-hmm. and not knowing what was going to happen. I'm glad that it very easily couldn't have could have worked out that I didn't go to that we couldn't figure it out or he wasn't interested. So that time has become super crystallized in my head. I've thought about it a lot because we had a lot of good time. Like we filmed the show and then every night after the show we'd hang out Mm -hmm. in the hotel restaurant and and hang out and just talk and talked about all sorts of things, him and the crew and me. And so it was like that time is really crystallized in my head because after he passed away it was just like I really have gone through it a lot. So he's one of the greatest.
0: And the last one I want to touch on uh, just because it kind of came out of nowhere when I was watching the movie Sorry to Bother You, (laughs) your your cameo. How did that happen? The
1: world did not have a good 20. 2018, but I had to get 2018. So I've known Boots for years. Boots, yeah, Riley, Boots Riley. He sent me an early screenplay draft of that movie, like six, seven years ago. And I read it like, it's good, but how are you going to pull this off? <laughs> so I mean, I literally was like, I, you know, I don't know how this happens. And I knew him enough to know all the permutations that went through. At one point, he wasn't directing it. And mm-hmm. so then he was directing it. At one point, he was going to star in it. And it, so I got to sort of be have a little bit of an insider view of how it all came together. But the funny thing about that is that I was at home one morning. I had a gig that night. I was going to open for The Roots at the Fox theater in Oakland and I got a call from my friend Nato Green who was a writer on Totally Biased and who lives in San Francisco he's like can you come do a part in Boots's movie He's like when he's like now <laughs> and so I turned to my wife I was like can I go do a part in Boots's movie she knows Boots he's like yeah okay and so I went down there and didn't know what we were looking at a fake it's like thing where you're not looking at the real thing mm-hmm. I got to meet Tessa Thompson I got to meet Steven Nguyen so I got to see some people got to hang out with some extras I was there for two hours and like said my one line and didn't feel like I felt like I don't even know what I'm saying or, I'm <laughs> <laughs> and I don't think of myself as an actor at all. I'm like, God, I hope I don't ruin Boots' movie. And sort of forgot about it until there started being advanced screenings of it. And people started, like, saying, I saw you in the movie. And I yeah. was like, it has given me so much Oakland cred. I'm yeah. super excited about it. Because that is, like, Oakland's movie right now. And it it has really given is. Me so much. I feel like I'm now officially from Oakland because I was not Sorry to Bother You. <laughs>
0: And finally, we'll end with what's the last thing that made you laugh really hard? Could be something on TV, something in your life, just anything, first thing that comes to mind that, that made you laugh.
1: The last thing that made me laugh really hard. I mean, I laugh all the time and people talk about my laugh all the time. So <laughs> I'm a really easy laugh and I laugh at inappropriate times. I'm trying to think of the last thing that is so... <laughs> My daughters, my two oldest daughters, because I have three daughters now, I have to remember. So my seven year old, my four year old, like Queer Eye, mm-hmm. like they started. My seven year old started watching it with my wife Melissa, and then the four year old started watching it, and now they love it, and they watch the same episode over and over again. And there's a scene in Queer Eye from the new season where it's about this guy who's about to have a baby. Or his wife's about to have a baby, and his house is a disaster. And when they're going through his house, they find a samurai sword, just sort of, like it's not really a samurai sword, but it was a, a sword, just sort of mm-hmm. like on the like this huge, like the kind of thing a, a dude buys, a yeah. single uh, that he's gonna <laughs> a sword. And it's just sort of sitting in the closet, and in the episode they make a big deal about how this sword is just hanging out here. And then later, Juno is she will recap the episodes, mm-hmm. and she was like, "And there was a samurai sword just chilling out in the room." <laughs> and just a four year old saying just samurai sword and just chilling in one sentence. Yeah, it just made me laugh until I cried because it was just like the and she just the way she said it, like she couldn't believe it. Even though like, you don't even know what a samurai sword is, he didn't say chilling. Where are you getting the word chilling from? I don't. Nobody. We don't say chilling like that. We haven't. And there's a samurai sword just chilling, and she was so confused about why. <laughs> I was just chilling, and it just made me laugh and laugh and laugh. My kids make me laugh a lot, yeah. and they know they make me laugh, so they try. They try to. try to make me laugh.
0: That's great. Well, thank you so much for uh, for coming and doing the show today. Thanks for having me. All right. Thanks for listening to that throwback conversation with W. Kamau Bell. You can follow him on Twitter at W. Kamau Bell and check out the fifth season of United Shades of America, premiering on CNN Sunday, July 19th. All four seasons of his show are currently available to stream on HBO Max. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by telling your friends about it and, of course, giving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes. The Last Lap is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week.